Did you start it with any inkling that this would be a $30 million business? We had a very clear intention on where we wanted to take the business and we became very intentional. So we became very revenue focused and very profit focused. Instantly global, instantly huge opportunity. It did nearly fall through on the last day. Well, we're gonna go there. This is called strategy and tragedy for a reason. What the hell happened? And we just sat there in silence while this person was on a call with the acquirer. Yeah, we were panicking. We were like, is it all going to fall through on the last day? We ended up in A&E until like 1am. And then, yeah, I remember the next day I was like, oh, I'm just going to stay in bed. If you've ever booked a fun night out before, then the chances are you've come across Design My Night. Founded back in 2009 and sold for over $30 million 10 years later, the founder has since gone on to angel invest in over 55 startups via Horseplay Ventures and is now the co-founder of Trumpet. Nick Towson sillett welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Amazing to have you here on the show. Thank you so much for coming on Strategy My and Tragedy. Pleasure. So... Obviously, Design My Night is kind of the headline, the mm -hmm. headliner, and I'm sure you're sick of <laughs> recounting the early days, but we are going to rewind the clock and go back to the start. So what I love about your founder story is that I feel like we've all been there, where mm -hmm. we've all been out with friends on a night out, and we've maybe had a couple of beers, and we all come up with this great business idea, and we all get excited, we're like, we have to do it, this is the best business idea ever. But this actually happened to you, yeah. and it was actually an amazing success. So tell us the story of that one night in New York City when Design My Night was born. Yeah, so we, so when I say we, it's Andrew, uh, my co-founder, um, so we've been best mates since day day one of university actually and um yeah we were in new york um out for drinks uh, quite a few drinks um and we yeah we we, uh, we don't really remember whose idea it was but we were sat there the concierge of the hotel was like you know where what type of night do you guys want what type of venue so i think that was stewing and then there was a website we used that had lots of deals in new york and one of us, we can't remember who, were like, oh, if you can combine that and maybe make that into a site in London. Um, at the time, this was back in 2009, 2010, there was only like Time Out and, and not many others actually. So it doesn't sound very revolutionary and it wasn't very re revolutionary, but we were like, let's just do it better than what's out there. Um, and yeah, it started from from that night and then we, we came home, carried on research and then decided to, to get on with it. Amazing. There's already, there are so many little nuggets and little lessons even just within that. But one of those that you just said there is not actually doing something like revolutionary, but just a bit better than what's out there. And you kind of taken me back, I think, 2010 was when I first came to London and I remember I didn't know anyone I was looking for fun things to do and all I would do was go on time out yeah. so how exciting I love also how I hear the story quite frequently about seeing something over in the states and then bringing mm -hmm. it over here so all right so what happened next so you started design my night and did you start it with any inkling that this would be a 30 million dollar business in 10 years time no so at the start we we weren't thinking like that um so i worked at l'oreal uh, doing marketing andrew is at accenture um and we carried on those jobs so we built design my night for a year um the classic story like weekends uh weeknights we'd meet up pretty much every weeknight every weekend and build the platform 
on weekends, once the, the product was actually launched, the site, we would doorstop bars, pubs. Um, it's not as fun as people think it was. We were doorstepping them in the day before they were open, trying to speak to the managers, really understand what they wanted in a discovery platform. That's what we called it. Um, and, you know, what they liked about timeout, what they didn't like about timeout, and just trying to gather all that knowledge. And it's a great trade to work in, very giving people, very friendly people. Um, so we did that for a year. Um, the site grew slowly, slowly, slowly. And we're like, okay, we could be onto something here. Um, and it was actually a moment my boss at L'Oreal at the time, who's a, who's a very good friend of mine now, he pulled me aside and he said, I know you're up to something because it was an open plan office. He's kept seeing me like run into meeting rooms. And he was like, I just want to remind you that in your L'Oreal contracts, you can't start anything else while working at L'Oreal. Okay. And so he, he, and he knew I was entrepreneurial and wanted to do my own thing. So that was a bit of a jolt. So that was like, okay, are we going to do it or are we not going to do it? So can I just jump in for a quick sec? So sorry, because, so what I thought you were going with there was like something competitive, right? Like obviously, but like nothing entrepreneurial at all. Or at least I think have to like tell them and get advice or um, I didn't actually look at my contract after then, yeah. <laughs> um, but that, that was just a jolt we almost needed. Wow. Um, I, I, so what we did was I, I left pretty soon after that. Andrew stayed at Accenture um, and we split his salary for six months um, so we could still survive. Um, carried on working nights uh, and, and weekends. And then after another six months, Andrew then came on board fully. So it was actually like 18 months since the idea mm. to, to both of us working full time on it. Interesting. So you, what was the deal then? So he was okay to, so he continued working so you could split the salary. Yeah. And the deal was you would Going have your time. time. Yeah. So I was full time on, on Design My Night. Interesting. Then. Okay. I've never come across that before. Yeah. Amazing. And I love also just going back to how you were literally like food, like, feet on the ground like going around the bars restaurants actually talking directly to people I think for for me and we still do this today so before we launched Trumpet which is in the sales space we spoke to 150 salespeople. I think um you know a lot of founders hide behind their desks or their laptops now um where actually you have to just get out on the ground and speak speak to to people people. and 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 they come up with the best ideas so a lot of the early ideas for design my night we when we pivoted to software as well, which was the game changer for us, that was a marketing manager of a bar chain's idea. It wasn't our idea. Um, so if we're not constantly speaking to them, yeah. you're going to miss out on some incredible ideas. Oh my God, amazing. And so, okay, so we're picking up some steam. <laughs> yeah. So you're both now kind of full-time on this and it's kind of growing. I read also that you only took, what was it, like 500K investment in total? Um, it wasn't a huge sum of money, especially compared to today's standards. And you turned that into an ultimate 30 million. So congratulations. Um, so how, how did you, how, how did you grow the company? So like you had 500 K, was it just a case of like, we only need a little bit more just to nudge the product market fit. We've already got all this great traction or. It was even slower than that. So we, um, Probably didn't raise the first lot, which was 250, um, probably three years into it. So for the next 18 months, we were just growing the, uh, the business. We were very big on SEO, so we didn't need to spend that much on marketing. Um, the great thing about that industry is there's just tons of searches. So if you think in London, 
rooftop bars and then it's rooftop bars in Shoreditch in the West End in Mayfair so like especially in London so there was all these customers out there googling stuff so we were like well if we can get that market we don't then need to spend a lot of marketing so we worked very hard on SEO um, and to this day luckily if you google most things design by night's number one or two um, so that's how we got our first sort of traction was was pure SEO didn't need to spend much uh, had sort of interns working with us um, then we raised 250 uh, which allowed us to hire an editor um, really sort of kick on the business um, we sort of implemented bookings into the platform as well um, again very startupy. we just decided overnight let's start taking bookings so we just put make an inquiry button on every bar page on the website um, and then when you made an inquiry on the site it came through to Andrew and I and we were just booking people in manually uh, 24 7 um, trying it's to like give people a great experience the whole uh, mechanical Turk thing right do you yes. know about that yes <laughs> just there behind the behind scenes. the scenes going nuts that's literally <laughs> what we were doing um and at that time booking into a bar was really difficult mm. so there was no booking software um you would phone a bar no one would be there till six o'clock and when you did it was the manager picks up who doesn't really care about taking bookings so we were like okay if we can just provide a better service than that so we would text them and say oh we haven't managed to book you in yet but we're working on it and then when we did book them in we sent them a text um to all very basic stuff but just elevated the customer experience um so did that got more revenue, then could reinvest that back into the business through bookings. Uh, then the next year, so year four, uh, was when we launched our software. So our booking software, which was the total game changer for us. And then we raised another 250 from the same six angel investors um, to kick on software. And so oh, that was exactly what I was just going to ask, actually. So the reason for taking external investment was purely for the product development, or mainly for that. Yeah, because we then had to sort of pivot internally as well so before that we were a very editorial team mm. but obviously launching software we needed more dev we needed customer success account management sales um so we sort of stripped back the editorial team uh, hired more in the software space mm. um and then cracked on in, into becoming a software platform yeah, as well makes sense. it's amazing it must i mean even just kind of going down memory lane a little bit now mm -hmm. to like the 2010s what a different time like yes. not that long time not that <laughs> no, long ago no. but completely different in yeah. terms of everything talent tech vc the rest of it would you agree because you were obviously there and building yeah, during it, that time. you know london yeah the especially raising money there there was it didn't seem that there was all these angel investors and individuals that could give you money the vc world was very much um silicon valley san fran based um so it didn't feel very realistic to, to raise money even um um, yes, people wanting to work in startups, you know, it's less of a leap of faith nowadays, you know, working in a startup is what a lot of people want to do. Um, so it's a very different scene. Um, interestingly, it's similar. It was in a recession. So 210, it was a recession. Um, which actually worked out well for us because we learned that Brits in a recession still like to drink. Uh, <laughs> so that. they didn't go on holiday, but they wanted to go to the pub or a bar. So actually for us, the nightlife space during a recession was actually very buoyant. Yeah, that's hilarious. Oh, good for you. I, so I was going to ask, like, given it was such a different time, is what... What worked for you back then that you think would still work for a version of Design My Night now? But mm -hmm. I might revise that question because you said that actually that was in the last recession and yeah. things were tough then. Yeah. So do you think that like if we were to pick up the 2009, 2010, 
design my night and put it into present day. Yeah. Do you think that, I mean, I know we can't A-B test or anything, <laughs> right? But like, do you think that you would come up against the same challenges? Do you think the stuff that worked for you back then would still work for you now? Yeah, I think um, I'd still play the SEO game from a B2C point of view. Um, obviously, post-COVID, you know, my contacts in hospitality is recovered somewhat, but it's more of a recession on the bar side this time than the consumer side. Um, so I think they're a lot stricter on the money they spend, the software they buy. Um, so I think it's a tougher market to sell software in at the moment just because the economy is so unsure. Mm. Um, but by all accounts, Design My Night's still doing very well um, for the contacts I have there. So it's still the, the same model for Design My Night is still pretty much in place mm. and it's still pretty buoyant. Mm. So doing things a little bit better and uh, and pr prioritizing SEO as mm -hmm. part of your marketing channels, is there anything else that you would attribute your success to with Design My Night? I think the Anything big, you'd do again? I think the team, the, the way we built that team um, was um, not, not that planned. We sort of felt we were like early, mid-20s. Uh, so we sort of fell into managing big teams and growing teams. Um, but that sense of unity we had at design by night the the early team and i say this when i speak to founders now that sort of first 10 hires are the most important not necessarily in terms of skill but they have to believe in the vision they have to really like you as founders and then they become your sort of eyes and ears as you grow so when design by night when we sold we were over 100 people I think nine out of those 10 were still there. Um, and they were the ones when Andrew and I couldn't be on the ground or on team nights out, they were the ones, you know, pro design my night. Um, so making sure they're the right type of person that really believe in your vision and want to see it through to the end with you um, is, is pivotal. And, and we've taken all of those learnings through to, to Trumpet as well. Mm, this is what many call culture, right? Is those first hires, it's how you scale your founder DNA without codifying it in SOPs or doing it in a more rigid kind of structure, but it's just that kind of vibe culture. It's that sense that, yeah, you know, culture is banded around a lot. And um, we were pre-COVID, so obviously everyone was in the office. So we had 100 people in an office in Hoxton in London. Um, so the vibe was amazing. It's got a very young team as well. Um, obviously, they were getting free nights out and all of that stuff. So it was like a very just fun environment to be in. So people loved to work there. Um, it's a lot harder now with flex working and, and um, not having an office. Um, but for me, the founders are the ones that just, yeah, the, 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 un, the untouchable thing. Um, and I think as founders, it's more actually about the sense of who you are. So, uh, you know, I always want to be very humble with the team. I want to be very open with the team. Um, the team know that sometimes a founder needs to put their foot down um, when things aren't going well, but it doesn't come from a sense of, um, you know, being the leader. Um, it's about driving the business forward. It's about having a clear strategy. It's pulling everyone along with you for the ride. Um, so it's all of those sort of untouchables um, that go beyond perks and mental yeah. well-being and all of that stuff that's important. Um, but that has to come from the founders. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like the perks is just, 
it gets the engines going in a job description. Yeah. And he is like, oh, cool, that looks, you know, maybe I'll put a bit more effort into the cover letter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Yeah. But then when you get in there, you're like, okay, thanks for the bean bags and, you know, free popcorn. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you hate your day-to-day work, but get a free gym membership, right. it's probably still not enough to convince you to stay. Yeah, I, I don't think. Yeah, and this is the sort of stuff that I feel like you only learn through experience yeah. as well. Right? I mean, you said you're in your 20s, it was a young team and you're just kind of thrown in there. So we start to kind of move things along. And so the exit is on the horizon. So like, what was that process like for you selling Design My Night? So obviously at the very beginning, you didn't have that foresight, those intentions. It was just kind of like, let's give it a go. You both had your day jobs anyway. But now it's like, okay, this is going well. Yeah. Where did that process start for you then? So it was after the second round. So four years in, uh, we had a very clear intention on where we wanted to take the business. And Andrew and I set ourselves a four to five year horizon. Um, we would talk very openly about this with the team. So the team knew we didn't want to stay at Design My Night for 10, 15 years. They all had shares as well. So we were like, if we do exit, it's for your good as well. Um, and we became very intentional. So we became very revenue focused and very profit focused because in our heads, we were like, if we can build a profitable business and a growing revenue business at the same time, your exit chances are going to be much bigger. So it's not just an industry buyer, but it could be private equity as well if you're spitting out cash. Um, so we, not that we were ever big spenders because we only had half a meal from investors, but we were very careful with what we spent. We made sure most things that we spent were sort of revenue drivers. We were very focused when it came to product on, you know, what's going to stop churn and get new customers on board. So just all the basic Mm. metrics that sometimes founders forget Mm. um, that become the revenue levers. And and what we actually did was we looked at exits in hospitality um, and started to plan out a rough multiple of revenue and profit Um, and Andrew and I agreed a sum with each other five years previous on what we would be happy with as founders. Um, And then we just multiplied that up. So we're like, okay, we need to have this much equity. We need to sell the business for X if we're going to take Y. Um, And we modeled it out, and we were like, okay, so in three to four years, we need to be at this revenue and this profit, and Mm -hmm. then we've got a good shot of selling it for what we want. And we tracked that quarterly Andrew and I had a chart that we were tracking revenue profit on our exit trajectory and actually a year out from exit um we were like okay next year we're going to be at those numbers let's start engaging um so we engaged a broker so it wasn't the dream scenario that people reading TechCrunch of you know open table emailing us saying we want to give you a hundred million dollars so we engaged a broker um, and that was like an eight month process from engaging the broker to, to actually selling the business. Interesting. I'm just going to back up a sec there because, uh, Hey, you make it sound so simple and easy. <laughs> this is like three-year-old maths here. Like, yeah, just, you know, how much do you want? <laughs> no, but I, I've definitely come to learn the importance of, of that decision-making and, charting your own course Mm -hmm. whether it's in business or otherwise and being like okay well how much do you want and let's you've just got to put the stake in the ground somewhere to then start developing a strategy around that so I love that and then one thing I wanted to come back to is your two focus areas of the revenue and the profit that you Mm -hmm. mentioned I don't know whether this is just too many years in the nitty-gritty of marketing land but to me they sound like you know sometimes they can be 
in opposition mm -hmm. to each other, yeah. right? Because either you've got the, I'm sure I'm oversimplifying this, but you've either got the revenue focus, which is like gain market share at all costs, mm -hmm. which can then of course be more expensive to acquire, which eats into your profitability, mm -hmm. or it is, no, we're gonna double down and have more of that quality. Yeah. So how did you manage to achieve both the revenue, the market share, and profit margins? Well, I think it doesn't have to be as binary as A or B. Um, so, you know, when we wanted to focus on both, uh, the revenue arm um, wasn't necessarily let's go global. So we had every month someone wanting to take us to a different country. We were like, nope, don't need to. Uh, we can achieve the targets we need in the UK. There's enough big cities in the UK. Um, so we sort of knocked that on the head. Um, and the beauty of software, which is why I love SaaS, is... Um, once you find the model, so A, once you've got product that people want uh, and is good, that's the first bit, the actual scaling up a SaaS product, which is why venture VC love it, is you don't, it's not like growing a, a D2C brand where actually it's just salespeople. Um, and actually you just model it out. Okay, well, one customer success person can look after 150 customers. Those 150 customers might be worth a million annual revenue to us and it's looked after by one customer success person um a salesperson once they've got the playbook right let's say they're earning with commission 80 grand a year but they're bringing in 300 400 grand a year you just add another one on you're mm. like okay well we've got the product we've got the playbook this person's costing us 80 grand and making us 400 grand let's add another one mm. and then once they start ticking let's add another one mm. and once the customers start spinning up we add another customer success person um so the beauty of software is you can do it both i think the the, the boom or bust that we see in the world at the moment, the ones that spring to mind, you know, like your Ubers actually just turned profitable, I believe. Um, <laughs> WeWorks, you know, all of those are more B2C, which is more marketing land of you need to spend the dollars and go global quickly big, but in sort of SaaS land. Mm -hmm. And I think now VC have wised up to that. Like you don't have to do boom or bust to grow a very big business that is also profitable. Mm, it's simple maths again, isn't it? It is, but I'm really yeah. bad at maths, so I keep it simple. <laughs> if all else fails, you can always go back and be a maths teacher. Exactly. <laughs> For kindergarten, basic maths. <laughs> I love that. Quick one, this is Future Steph coming to you from beyond. If you're enjoying this episode, then you can probably guess what I want you to do please do me one tiny favor that costs you nothing and takes a second of your time. Hit that subscribe button. It really helps to support the show. And I'm really grateful for you listening. Let's get back into it. Okay, super interesting. So you, so coming back onto the exit, so that was an eight month process you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess first only last time that you've, that you've gone through that whole exit. So mm -hmm. I've never been through this. So mm -hmm. what, was that like? If we were flying a wall yeah. up the road at the Hoxton offices, yeah. what would we have been seeing during those eight months of the exit process of selling Design My Night? If you're in the office, you wouldn't have seen much. So you have to keep it very quiet. So the team didn't know we were exiting until the night before. So wow. apart from our finance manager, obviously, who was helping us prepare everything. <laughs> so um, you have to keep it very quiet. Um, and our broker was great. And basically... 
the sort of first four or five months, uh, they're building the story with you. So they come in, they want to understand the business. Um, Design My Night, when it came to exit, it was quite complicated. So we had the B2C arm. We actually had three bits of SaaS by the end, uh, all very all different revenue models. Um, so they really had to understand the business. They remodeled the business with us. And then you put together something called an IM, which is essentially like an 80-page slide deck about like where you've been, where you are, where you want to go. Um, and that literally took like three or four months with the broker. Um, and then they start shipping you out to people. So um, we drew a list up of all the people we thought would want to buy us. So the obvious ones were us, so like TripAdvisor, OpenTable, et cetera. Um, they had ones we'd never heard of and ones in Asia, et cetera. Um, and I remember the, the day we drew up those lists, the broker said, I guarantee the acquirer won't be any of any of these lists. Um, he was like, it always happens that way. And our crowd wasn't originally on any of those lists. Um, and yeah, it starts shipping you out. You start sending out the packs. The broker does it all to the heads of M&A at TripAdvisor and all of those. And then you just go through interview processes. Mm. So if they're interested, they'll have like a 20 minute chat. If they're more interested, they'll pull you into the office and have a chat with the CEO and the head of M&A. Then if they're still interested, they'll probably get someone in from the business to chat to you. So with our acquirer, we probably had about six chats um, to get to offer stage. Um, we had three offers on the table at the end. Um, then you enter negotiation with those three partners. So it's about a month negotiation. Then you sign exclusivity. So we signed exclusivity with one, that our, our actual acquirer. Um, and um, then you go into due diligence. Um, so due diligence for us was about a month, which is quite light. Um, and then if you get through due diligence, you then sign the papers. Wow. <laughs> How did this compare to like the fundraising process? Like it sounds pretty similar to like, you know, lots of conversations. Yeah, it's, it's, it's more, it is a, it's a weird feeling of excitement, but not wanting to get carried away. Yeah. Same as fundraising, I suppose. But, yeah. you know, we'd worked so hard to get the business to where it had. And the one thing Andrew and I would always say to each other was, well, what if no one wants to buy it? Like, okay, great, you're doing this and this, but what if no one's interested? You're like, you don't know mm. that anyone wants to buy it, especially at the number that we wanted. So um, it was that nervous excitement. Um, but as the groundswell starts to happen and you have more and more conversations, they're more interested, and then offers start to come in. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a very strange scenario. Our broker, again, did say, do not celebrate until you literally sign the paper. And for us it did nearly fall through on the last day. Um, oh. So that was an absolutely crazy thing. Well, we're going to go there. <laughs> this is called strategy and tragedy for a reason. Yeah. What the hell happened? There was, so we were meant to sign the papers. So the night before, we told the team, we oh, pulled the team in and our lawyer said to us, okay, we're going to go to the acquirer's um, legal offices, fancy legal offices in, in central London um, I think it was at like half 9am, we'll sign the papers, they're going to take you out for lunch, and then we were going to celebrate with our team. We booked a, a bar for our team, um, and we said, oh, we'll meet you at like 5pm at the bar. Um, and then we got a phone call at like half 7am from the lawyer, who's like, can we jump on a call? We were like, yeah. And there was a new EU law around payments that had come out, and we had a payment system in our product. We'd never heard of it. And he said the acquirers would like to know what your view is on this new payment law. And we were like, we said to our lawyer, we have never even heard of this law, let alone what we're going to do. And they were like, well, they want to know because a payment was a big part of our platform. Um, so 
we used Stripe at the time. So we phoned up our Stripe account manager and we were like, you know, we couldn't tell him we were exiting. So we were like, we need you to jump on a call with our board members to explain the new law. And he was like... ASAP, uh, like uh, quarter to yeah, eight yeah, in the morning. He was like, and we were like, today. He <laughs> Can't said, tell you why, but this is said, the most important thing on your agenda today. <laughs> and it, gets, it wasn't because he was like, I'm on the way to hospital because my wife's giving birth. Oh my God. <laughs> so we were like, you okay. cannot make this stuff up. <laughs> we were like, brilliant. Well done. Uh, is there anyone else? Um, and he was like, yeah, I'm sure I can, I'll get someone else to do it because we were like, it's really important. But we managed to get someone to go. And we just sat there in silence while oh this Stripe person God. was on a call with the acquirers, even though we said it was our board members and they were asking him all about this law. Um, and that was at like three o'clock by that time. Do you uh, remember what you were feeling on this day? Uh, yeah, we were... Like going through the ring yeah we were like is it all going to fall through on the oh last day my God. um and then yeah we put the phone down just sat and waited and then an hour later the lawyer phoned and was like they're satisfied let's go to the lawyer so we didn't get to the lawyer's office till like five six um finished finished signing the papers at like seven obviously oh they didn't take us out for lunch um <laughs> and we didn't get to the bar till like eight where they drunk all the champagne and they were wasted and we rocked like, in don't eat the champagne anyway yeah, give me the knackered. hard stuff yeah. and I open the whiskey yeah so yeah we and then I actually remember that night one oh of our team God. members tripped up and smashed her face on the table so we ended up in A&E Andrew and I with her oh uh, till like 1 a.m um and then yeah i remember the next day i was like okay, i'm just gonna stay in bed till about 11 and just recover so it's a wild exit Lit. day yeah oh my <laughs> god this sounds like just the stuff of like films and books <laughs> what a roller coaster do you remember the date the exact date that all this happened <sighs> i do actually uh because one of my best friends had twins who were born on the same day oh my god what is this all these people <laughs> being born on the same day and I'm godparent to the twins. So when we celebrate their birthday, he always says happy exit day as well. I can't remember it now. It was recently. It was in December. Jesus. No, end of November. Yeah. So it was crazy. Wow. Yeah. So you've also got just like winter and cold and everything as well with all this going on. <laughs> my God, Nick, I feel like I need to like catch my breath after that. I mean, just hearing the story, like empathizing with that, I'm like, bloody hell, like that's that's given my heart a run for its money. But it's good fun. Actually, being, I guess that's where you, you must have been so thankful to have a co-founder with yes. you during all of that as well. Could you yeah. imagine being no. on your own? I say the whole ride, I can, I, I uh, have a lot of admiration for solo founders, um, even as an investor, I'll be mm. honest, I prefer to invest in two or three founders because mm. I just know how hard it is. Yeah. You know, you'll know yeah. how hard it is. Well, thank you so much for serving that segue on a platter there because moving <laughs> on from Design My Night, so congratulations, you exited and got to have a lion the next day. Um, so you set up Horseplay Ventures, which yeah. is your vehicle, as I understand it, for angel investments yeah. into other founders and startups. So um, thank you for half answering the next question, which was, of course, what is it that you look for in your angel investment? So yeah. we've got a couple, two or three of <laughs> founders. That's the first kind of checkbox. What else is it that you look for? Um, we've always been pretty sort of sector agnostic. I think Andrew and I's philosophy is we just need to understand the business. Um, like we obviously really understand SaaS and we like SaaS. So um, software is, is big for us. We've invested in some D2C brands, but I'm not the biggest fan of D2C brands. And it's not something I'm that knowledgeable on, you know, like, uh, Google ads and CAC and all that stuff. Um, 
so uh, yeah, we've invested in loads of random stuff from like agri-tech uh, to like uh, robots that make coffee uh, to more standard stuff that I fully understand. Some very similar products to design my night, but in different um, areas. Um, and we're in, yeah, like 55, 56 now. Um, Is there a commonality that most of them all share? We're looking back now, you've got over 55. Mm. Is there something that you're like, okay, that's, that's actually the magic. I think the best, the best ones, cause they're not all great. Um, are, are the founders are so the ones that are really working well. Um, and there are a few that are solo founders actually. Um, the founders just have that something special that when I speak to them, I'm like, and it's very difficult to explain, but mm. I just get that feeling mm. that you get it, you get what you need to build, you get how hard it's going to be. You really understand the market you work in. And that's really important to me. Um, you don't have to have worked in the market. Like, I never worked in hospitality, but we researched hard and we were speaking to bar owners all the time. So I really quiz founders on, you haven't just come up with an idea about how well do you know the problem you're solving? How well do you know that pain point? Um, all of the ones that are doing really well uh, all tick that box. Mm. Um, Is that where they say, you know, there's like a touch of like founder crazy that all successful entrepreneurs have? Yeah, I think you, I mean, you do have to be crazy to start your own business. Like I, I think it's been glorified a lot um, on social media, but it's the hardest thing you're likely to do. Um, I hope for people that there's not harder stuff than that. Um, so I think you do have to be a bit nuts to start your own thing. Um and I just, it sounds really, na I just look for good people. You know, you, 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 people idolize the, the, the Elon Musks and the Bezoses of this world. And obviously they're, they're, they're a different form of genius. You know, un unfortunately I don't get to invest in Tesla when it was a pre-seed investment. You know, you, you don't tend to meet those people. So the, the founders I meet, um, I'm just like, can I see you running a team? Can I see that team following you? Are you a decent person? Are mm. you going to make the right decisions at the right time? Mm. Um, and have you got that root? You, you have to have a ruthless streak. You can't be Mr. or Mrs. Nice the whole time. Mm. But just if you're a decent person, you're more than likely to bring customers and your team along with you. Mm. It's, it's really interesting. I feel like we could just literally talk for hours on like the founder profile and what it mm -hmm. takes to be a successful entrepreneur. And I was just chatting with my partner about it the other day because he is incredibly smart. Like he's studied at Cambridge. He's super intelligent. He's a lovely guy. Obviously, I'm a bit biased, but, you know, he's decent. He's got like a lot of these traits going for him and he and he's not at all in the in the entrepreneurial startup mm -hmm. world which I am and he was like oh could I do you think I could be a fan I was like definitely not and it's like <laughs> you're you could be so amazing at so many things but like you my view is after working with over like 100 founders over the past like five plus years as well is I feel like you have to be so outstandingly excellent mm -hmm. at so many different things mm -hmm. in order to be a successful entrepreneur. Like you have to have, I, I just feel like you can't be halfway on mm -hmm. one or two of the things. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can, you'd still be great. You'd still, you know, have a great business, whatever, but to really be like, to really make it yeah. be a read. And then you've obviously, you've got your, the luck of the draw and yeah. macro external factors yeah. and everything else into yeah. it. I sort of look at it that I'm like, if, if you are exceptional at one thing, um, 
that could be marketing, that could be sales, that could be product, that could be design, whatever. Um, and then good at everything else because the first two years you have to do everything. Um, I think that's a, a, a good way to go. I, I also look that at founders, can you sell? I don't care if you're an engineer um, or if you're normally behind the laptop, like the founder has to be able to sell. If, if one of you cannot sell to investors, to customers, to your team, you have to be a salesperson. Um, so that for me, the best founders I've come across have that sales instinct as well. It's such um, a fundamental skill, isn't it? We don't get taught it. We don't get enough training in that. No. Um, you are great at handing me these segues on a silver platter, <laughs> <laughs> Nick, because the whole selling and having a great <laughs> sales skill set brings us onto Trumpet, yes. which is your new venture now, right? So yeah. tell us, what is Trumpet? So Trumpet is um, digital sales rooms um, for sales teams to collaborate with their buyer. So we looked at, we looked back at Design My Night actually, and we were thinking, okay, what, what, what could, where could we have implemented tech into Design My Night where we haven't before? Um, and the sales team, we were like, just starved of technology. Like on the one hand, you've got your outreach tools to trying to reach the person. And on the other hand, you've got your CRM where you're logging everything. And then you've got that whole thing in the middle of getting the deal done, which is over email and PDFs and slides. And we were like, there's just no technology there. So we wanted to create these digital spaces where you can collaborate with your buyer. You can drop in case studies and proposals and video and audio and create a really collaborative space for you and the buyer to get the deal done. That's ultimately what you want. If they're interested and you're selling it, how can you get the deal done better and quicker for the buyer? Um, so that, that was the original premise is how can we make the buying experience better? The sales industry is very focused on how do you make salespeople better hunters? But actually buyers don't want to deal with hunters. They want to deal with authentic people that are helping them get the deal done over the line quicker. So that was the sort of the initial thought process of two years ago now. And now it's this huge trend, luckily, called buyer enablement, which is all about helping the buyer get the deal done. Um, so luckily for us, Trumpet is a buyer enablement tool and is sort of riding the crest of that wave at the moment. Okay, amazing. Congratulations. Thank I've been following your journey and it all, um, you've really embraced the whole building in public yeah. kind of thing, right? Was that a conscious decision? And if so, why? Why are you, you're being so brazenly transparent on LinkedIn, especially yeah. Um, it, when I saw DMN, I knew I would do something again. Um, and I just made the conscious decision to build a profile. It's easier once you, you've exited so people sort of want to hear your story. Mm. Um, but in my head, I thought if I can build a following, then it would be easier to sell to that following. Mm. Um, so for like a year after I exited, I, I worked hard on LinkedIn. I don't have any other social media in my life. So I have no sort of personal social media I'm, I don't really want that in my life and I focus on LinkedIn um and it's been amazing for me like mm. Trumpet when we launched we had like 5,000 people on the wait list I would say 70% of that came from LinkedIn originally uh, a lot of our customers come from LinkedIn seeing what we're doing Salespeople are on LinkedIn it's the natural place to be um and yeah if you share the highs and the lows you show you're authentic you show what you're trying to build that will naturally allow people to come to you and like design my night where SEO was free LinkedIn is free so Rory who's our third co-founder in Trumpet 
I schooled him on how to build a LinkedIn profile and he's amazing at sales. So he does a lot of sales education on there. He's nearly caught me up actually in followers in much <laughs> less time. Um, and we encourage our team to be like, get, get on LinkedIn, share the journey, share learnings. Um, and it's been amazing for us. Like, yeah. I absolutely love it. I, I've definitely seen all of it happening as well. So I can see all the fantastic success that you're having on there. I love also how you're like, oh, this was the free thing that worked for us back at you know dmn 10 years ago with the seo and then this is kind of the equivalent now in like modern day you just mentioned about encouraging the team as well how have you got any practical tips about how to do that because i've, I've always been very you know your linkedin profile is yeah. is yours it's your personal but yeah. i try to inspire and set yeah. an example but i how how do you go about kind of motivating others if yeah. they're not yeah, I mean, look, you can't force anyone. So we don't say you have to be posting on LinkedIn. Our, our managers, our leaders in our teams, um, we, we we tell them to, it's, it's about building your profile as well. Like, you know, you're not going to be at Trumpet for 20 years, I imagine. So start to build your journey now um, and show your expertise. And I think with LinkedIn, as long as you're authentic, because um, there's a lot of inauthenticity there, um, people will resonate with that and you find your tribe everyone's got a tribe in some instance you know me it's more founders Rory it's more salespeople. our head of customer success there's loads of CS people on on LinkedIn as well so like share what we're doing share your learnings help people um, as long as it's not a one-way street um, a lot of the content I always say is it's about can the reader take one thing from that post or the or podcast or something. Um, and if they've taken at least one thing from that post, then it's worthwhile and they'll engage with it. If you're just telling them how good you are. Um, th it's just not serving anything. No, purpose. it doesn't serve it's, anything. It's just the, the chest beating, which there's definitely enough there's of enough on of LinkedIn, that, isn't yeah. there? So what are you doing differently this time around with Trumpet? I was going to ask, you know, what made you <laughs> want to take up another venture? Because I'm guessing after Design My Night, you don't necessarily need mm -hmm. to go through the craziness of startup again, but... Um, yes, I mean that was a big decision to go again. It was during COVID, so we we sold in 2019. So Andrew and I just soul searched. Yet we were luckily financially free and can go on holiday and do nothing for the rest of our lives. But we were like, we're too young to do that. What do we love doing? And we agreed that we just love building businesses and actually just with less pressure this time. Um, and we brought in a third co-founder, Rory. So, um, you know, he can shield uh, a lot of the crap that we don't want to deal with on, on the second startup, which is great. He's amazing. Um, so, yeah, there, there's that sort of zest for it. You know, we're doing it because we love it rather than we have to with Trumpet. Um, different wise, we've, we've gone VC. So we, we, we raised money pre-product, pre-revenue. So very different, um, very different to the mantra I was spouting before about bootstrapping. Um, but uh, there's no one way to run a business. Um, for us, Trumpet was instantly global, um, instantly huge opportunity. Um, every team has a sales element to it. So every company in the world can and could use trumpet um so we wanted to seize that opportunity which is why we raised vc and that has different pressures different stresses that we didn't have a design by night um so we're learning that as well mm -hmm. we're learning how to handle vcs as well um, and the raising game um but a lot of the core principles we've done the same uh it's about the team it's about building great product it's about speaking to your customers all the time 
um, sh uh, sharing publicly how things are going. Um, all of those core principles have stayed the same from Design My Night. Um, even with VC money, we're still very strict with what we spend. Um, everything has to ha have a goal to revenue. Um, and that, that is what we are fanatical about is again, revenue and getting to profit. So it's the same principles, um, but on a bigger scale this time. Mm, exciting. Where can people go to find out more about Trumpet? So Trumpet, um, we're on sendtrumpet.com. Um, people think the product's called Send Trumpet, which annoys me because it's a big logo. It says <laughs> Trumpet, not Send Trumpet. We unfortunately couldn't buy Trumpet.com. all the time. Yeah. Literally, the amount, <laughs> it is wild how much the URL yeah. influences what people think the company is called. called all the time. Yeah, they were like, oh, I was looking at Send Trumpet. And I'm like, no, it's called Trumpet. <laughs> Does that annoy you? Uh, yes. It was like Design My Night. So many people called it Design By Night. Right. And I was like, that doesn't even make sense. What does design by night mean? Even in interviews, people have called it design by night. And I just like, uh, so it's called Trumpet, but you can go to sendtrumpet.com, check it out. Um, if you look for us on LinkedIn as well, we're talking about it all the time. Yeah, and, and do follow them on LinkedIn. It is um, definitely put out lots of really, really help, like genuinely like, educational inspirational posts um one of which as well um is just to touch on i know that you're really um you know the lgbtq yeah. initiative is important to you as yeah. well would you like to shed a bit more light on some of that yeah i think just like representation as, as a gay founder like representation is super important um you know, it's nuts in, in 2023 that uh, women are still considered a minority in terms of businesses, even though they're 50% of population, obviously like ethnic minorities. Um, and those are the two that are often talked about and rightly so. Um, but obviously the one that I know um, is, is the LGBT stuff. Um, and yeah, just uh, a be a... I don't want to use the word figurehead, but, you know, representation for sort of other LGBT founders that you can be successful. Mm. Sometimes that's all it takes. Just being visible. It's being visible. Mm. Um, and there's a group of us, we've set up something called Proud Ventures, um, which is a group of investors, so mainly VCs, actually. Um, so people at VCs who are LGBT plus um, and some uh, angel investors as well. Um, and yeah, we, we did like a, a conference uh, for found LGBT plus founders all about just being your authentic self, like uh, be who you are, that will be, you will be the best founder if you can authentically be yourself. Um, so we put out lots of educational content, we're doing conferences, um, we wanna help them raise money, give them feedback on their decks, feedback on their business, and just create a safe space for that part of the community. Yeah, lovely. Because yeah, it's a very sort of straight white male world still. Um, especially in venture and startup land. Do you know what was funny about one of the comments <laughs> that I saw on one of your posts about being just more visible in the space and just touching on that really important representation piece? I saw somebody post about um, ability uh, as in kind of, you know, disabled mm -hmm. and these other, these other segments of the population. And it was just like... <laughs> you kind it's it's a funny because it's like you open the door yeah. to the wider representation diversity piece and it's like but what about this but what about this and you've already mentioned there like women and ethnic minorities and yeah. different levels of ability and neurodiversity yeah. it's like we are all the rainbow of like yeah but it's funny how some people is like they can't just let you have 
your story to tell yeah. and your particular mission. It's, yeah. oh, but what about this? But what yeah. about <laughs> And then, yeah, and it, you know, I, my whole life, I try and be authentic. So I, I'm not a woman. Um, I'm not from an ethnic minority. So I, I will support that. Um, but I can't talk with any authenticity about that or lived experience. So while I'll always support initiatives around, you know, all the different sectors of society, um, I think being in sort of the, the LGBT plus community, it makes you more open to all different sectors of society because, you know, we're so marginalized um, that I think it just makes you more of an open person because you've seen what persecution looks like. Um, but I can only talk about my lived experience. Yeah. And that is all I will ever do. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Well done you, Nick. Honestly, I love Thank that. It's awesome. So Closing question, the tradition mm -hmm. on this podcast, so it's called Strategy and Tragedy for a reason. Mm -hmm. You said yourself, you know, entrepreneurship has been glamorized mm -hmm. and the truth is <laughs> it's not that glamorous. No. Um, there's also the belief that often the best lessons can come from the biggest mistakes. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, what is one tragedy mm -hmm because your exit did go through eventually mm, yes. <laughs> a few hours later. <laughs> what is a tragedy that stuck with you that's taught you a lesson that you won't forget? Yeah, so um, it was actually at Design My Night, um, early years, probably two years in, We I talked about SEO a lot. So we actually gave our SEO to an agency. Um, and Andrew and I at that time didn't really understand SEO. Um, and this agency was doing at the time, it was called Black Hat Techniques, which was like tricking Google basically. Um, and traffic was going great and we were climbing up the rankings. We were like, great, you know, keep doing what you're doing agency, not knowing what they were doing. Um, and I remember, I'll always remember, we came in one morning, we looked at analytics every morning and we lost about 80% of our traffic. And we just thought it was a glitch in analytics. We'll check back later. No, still gone. Next day, still gone. Googled it um, and they'd released a new algorithm it was called penguin at the time um which cut out all the black hat techniques um so we just lost our ranking overnight basically um and from that moment on it's always taught me to understand what i'm doing um and not just blindly hand over so bring in expertise but really understand what they're doing and and from that day on andrew and i taught ourselves seo um and we still work with agencies at trumpet um but we really understand what they're doing this time uh, we just don't have the time to do it mm. um so i always try and even on a surface level educate myself um, on something that affects a business rather than just blindly handing it over because that was a very harsh lesson mm. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Nick. And thank you again for coming on the podcast. It's been such a pleasure to sit down with you and hear some of your story. I feel like you've got many, many more. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll leave that there for the podcast. And thank you so much for listening. Really hope you enjoyed this episode. Please hit that subscribe button. It really helps us out. And tune in for the next one.